Okay, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5 or your app to James chapter 5. We are in the last chapter, the last verses, the last message on the book of James. Oh, nobody cheered. Uh, that was just me. Um, I have loved this book. Uh, however, I am actually glad there's only five chapters of James um, because it's a very thick, very intense book that in some ways is not very outsider sensitive. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's had its difficulties in preaching because it assumes that someone wants to mature and grow up in their faith. And if, it, if you don't want that, if you show up and you don't want to grow in your faith and you don't want to be a Christian, it will feel very obtuse to you. And yet God has done, I think, a work in us. He's begun to purify our church and we've seen many stories uh, and really a, a lot of stuff has hit the fan this fall. And I don't think it's coincidental that it's because we went through a book of James that, that, that challenged us to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to our faith. And if you felt challenged, then I believe that's the Spirit of God working because that really is the message of James. And if you're new to the book of James, um, well, welcome. This one's a real doozy. Um, it ends abruptly. It's really thick. There's a lot to get through this morning, and I need help. So can I pray for us? Jesus, if you would be so kind as to send your extra doses of your Holy Spirit this morning to open our minds, to open our hearts, um, to bring faith to those of us who need faith, to bring clarity to, for those of us who need clarity, to bring courage for those of us who need courage, Jesus. There are some here this morning that are absolutely and totally brokenhearted and nothing as of yet has fixed what they're struggling with. And Jesus, I'm asking that you do miracles this morning, that you heal bodies and you heal hearts today, that you reach into places that no other human being can touch, but through your spirit, you touch. This is impossible for me to do with words. I have no power. I have no authority on my own, Jesus, but I'm asking. I am begging for your spirit to come in power today. To do something that we can't humanly do. And that we will be able to point back to and say, this was not a work of our church. This was not a work of our people. This was a work of God's Holy Spirit. And may we all be able to recognize that today, Jesus. I ask this in your awesome and holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, would you go ahead and raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to bring you one. Uh, we have a tendency to go through our Bibles and use them on a weekly basis. And so if you come back, you're going to need it. But let me read this passage out for us and then we'll get into it. Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word for us. Now, I don't know what you think of prayer. I don't know your background in prayer. I don't know if this is something that comes naturally. I don't know if this is something that uh, you struggle with. I don't know if this is something that you do well or want to do better. My story on prayer is that I don't feel ever that I have any kind of authority to speak on prayer from personal experience. That's the skeptic in me. Some actually look at me and say, how can you be like that and be a pastor? Because I'm a real person, that's why. And my, my nature, my human nature is to be skeptical constantly skeptical. I hate that about myself sometimes. And I don't love that I approach things in such a skeptical format. And if you ask me how my prayer life is going, I will almost always tell you it could be better. I don't know if that's you this morning. In fact, I've rarely run into someone who said, my prayer life is the, be is the best part of my life. Most people struggle somehow through this. They struggle uh, to know how to pray. They struggle to know what to pray. They struggle to know when to pray. So if you're this morning, you're here this morning and you have the corner on prayer life, I might disappoint you by what I say. Because I don't feel that I have the corner and yet I have the great responsibility and great honor to talk about prayer and this text in particular has been very, very helpful for me. Now, Lower your expectations. This isn't everything there is to know about prayer. So if you walk away and there's some questions you still have about, how does this work or how does that work? It's like, this is why we go through all of the books of the Bible, if we can, and not just some. This is why we talk about various places because James doesn't have everything there is to know about prayer. He is speaking to a very specific people who have a very specific background. He's general, in that he was speaking to a lot of Christians, but he was speaking to Christians who had a Jewish background. That means they would have been very familiar, regardless of how orthodox they were, regardless of, of, of how much they, they were uh, following God at the time, they would have been passed down some sort of history and tradition of prayer and how this works. In fact, I would argue that up until the Enlightenment, this text had a lot of assumptions behind it. But post-Enlightenment, where some philosophers challenged whether God even existed anymore, or if there was any idea about a God, we began to pull away from this idea of prayer. Prayer began to be something for the weirdos, the spiritual people, not the rational scientific people. And so you and I are a product of that kind of culture where we're just not necessarily used to these ideas for the most part. Now, if we have a vibrant prayer life, I think this is a work of God. And it, but we're generally not in that category. We're generally not in the category where we just, the first 
thing we've always done is turn to prayer. And if you talk to anyone who's not from a church background or not a Christian, even some spiritual person, they will likely resist you and they'll say, why, why would you pray? That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Did you know that would be a weird thing to say three or four hundred years ago? Prayer doesn't work. There is no such thing as asking a higher power. That would have been a weird statement. Pre-enlightenment. And so let's remember that there's a lot of assumptions in this text that we can't get to because James is a product of his culture as well. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He never really quotes this. It's, uh, you have to do a little bit of digging to find this out. And so he actually was able in some ways to see uh, the Son of God up close and personal, like relationally. It's a strange thing when you think about it. And so he has seen a lot of this stuff up front. And so he's making a lot of assumptions. But one of them is very clearly that there are people in this context who don't understand the access to God they really have for physical healing in particular. They don't understand that part of the gift that comes from believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is an opportunity to ask the creator of the universe who created our physical bodies for physical healing. There are some people in that context who still can't get their head around that. And there are some people that are struggling with physical ailments, but they don't understand that the creator of the universe is concerned about their physical health, but he's ultimately concerned about their spiritual health. And they don't understand that sometimes there's actually a connection between the two. And so that's what the text is going to talk about this morning. It's going to talk about this access for physical, physical, scientific healing. You know, we, we push this off to the side, but there are a number of times where medically you show up to the hospital and they cannot explain why you're better. This happens today. There are cancer patients that at times show up to hospitals, there's no more cancer, there's no reason for this. They're like, I don't know. It still happens. And there are some that refuse to deal with the spiritual side of the body. They just want the physical healing. As if God is in some ways, some sort of guru that we can just snap our fingers or say the right incantation and he will provide us with what we really need. And I think James speaks to both of these people, both of these kinds of people and says, well, wait, 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 wait. Yes, physical healing is available, but there's other things that Jesus wants to heal in your life. And I'm hoping, we prayed this morning, that if you're in one of these two categories, you don't feel whole. There's something missing in your life and it's not just not enough money. There's something physically wrong with you that you can't figure out and you don't know where else to turn. There's something wrong with you spiritually. Inside you feel sick. You know you need healing. This text speaks to us. So let's get into it. The first part, prayer for physical healing. This is verses 13 to 15. 
This is how James says it. Now, James is a blunt kind of writer. He's a shoot from the hip kind of guy. Plus, these are the days where pen and paper aren't readily accessible, so writers are always short on words. And what does he say right away? Is anyone among you suffering? Well, the whole book has been about people that are suffering. It's kind of like this rhetorical question that James likes. So, are any of you breathing? This is what he's saying. Any of you suffering? Of course there's people suffering. What are they suffering from? All kinds of things. Sometimes it's oppression. Sometimes They didn't have hospitals. There's lots of sickness. To live to the age of 40 in these days is a long life. Remember, that's, that's a context here. For us, if we don't live to our 40s, we're mad. Right? We have a right to live till we're 40. I eat healthy. I eat clean. I'm vegan. I, de- I deserve to live till I'm 40. That's, how, that's our approach. That wasn't their approach. So are you ailing? Are you suffering for whatever reason? Let him pray. Ask. I'm not going to assume you even know what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God like he exists. Prayer is not coming up the right words. Oftentimes I hear people pray sometimes and I'm like, why did you change your tone? Why did you change how you say that? Why did you, why did you fold your hands? Why did you, clo- like, what is it? Why don't you talk to God like he exists to you? How would you talk to someone who you greatly admire, greatly respect, greatly love? Talk like that to God. Because that's exactly how we should talk to God. If you need some help, Jesus actually said, here's how you can pray. Here's a guideline. Pray to the Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You can tell the King James in me, right? The oldness. There's some, this is what prayer is about. It's about talking to God. Is anyone suffering? Let them pray. Simple. If you feel you're suffering, you have a chance to talk to the creator of the universe about this. Is anyone cheerful? I love that the translation says cheerful and not like, does anyone have joy? Because usually we're like, joy is this deep thing, but cheerful is not like external. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. I love that about the text. The translators felt like they they didn't want to give the impression that this was some really spiritual, deeply fulfilling thing. It was like your day is going great. What does he say? Let them sing praise. Musical form of prayer. Everything has an opportunity to talk to the Father. Is anyone amongst you sick? So this gets into this physical thing. Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I know, really self-explanatory, right? Of course it isn't. There's tons of questions out of this. There's so much content. Let's go through some of these basic questions that some of you might have. You're like, first of all, why does James encourage you to call for the elders of the church? Well, I love this, and we've talked about eldership here at Urban Grace in the the fall, and some of you think eldership is this idea of governance and rule and authority, and that's what eldership is really all about. We are elder-led here at Urban Grace. This is very important to me because I think it's a biblical principle. We have qualifications for elders. We believe they're found in 1 Timothy 3. Titus 1. It's in our bylaws. 
Like we told the government, this is how we choose the leaders of our church. What does that mean? Are they the ones who decide on the budget and all these things? Yes, that's part of it. Here's the primary part of what an elder does. Care for people. Pray for people. That's what we're here for. There's only two of us today. We've tried to make it a regular occurrence that there's at least two of us in every service so that at any service you could actually obey this text. I need the elders. We had one Sunday, someone couldn't make the service. They said, can we come after the service and have the elders pray for us? And I was like, yes, this is exactly what eldership is about. It's exactly how the church is supposed to function. Is that you this morning? You know, when we pray at the end, this isn't an add-on for us. In some ways, we think this is almost the pinnacle of the service. You have access to the Father. You have elders. What's holding you back? Come forward for prayer. I know there are things that are holding you back, and we're going to talk about them. Regularly, the Bible uses the metaphor of elder is a pastor, is a bishop, according to Scripture. These words are used interchangeably, but that word pastor slash elder slash bishop are not authoritative ones. They're, ones. they're images of a shepherd. That's the word pastor is actually Latin for shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Does a shepherd sit there in his office and say, sheep, you do what I say? Or does a shepherd go out and find, hey, like... Has anyone ever been involved with animal husbandry? Anyone? I know there's one person. Yes, it's Megan. I knew it was Megan. She said this last time. She's the only one who has actually worked with sheep. But if you've ever worked with animals, what do you do? What do you do? You take a look at the sheep. Are they lame? Are they eating properly? Are they bleeding? They got sores all over them. Are their feet okay? Have they frozen an ear? These kinds of things. That's what you do if you're in animal husbandry. You pay attention to those things. I grew up on a farm, but not a cattle farm. But I remember very clearly, cattle farmers would get up very early in the morning during calving season and constantly check on the health of their animals. Are they okay? Did they give birth properly? Is mom okay? Is calf okay? They freeze anything. Are they eating properly? Are they digesting properly? Do they have enough warmth? Do they have access to water? That's what shepherds do. This is what James is saying. This is what elders do. He's saying they, they pray for people. What I love in this text is that the faith here that's talked about, this prayer of faith, does not have the prayer of faith upon the person who asked for prayer, but upon the elders. That's interesting, isn't it? In other words, here's an opportunity for you who feel faithless, for you who feel you don't have enough faith, and this is exactly what it feels like when you're sick and when you're suffering. You're like, I can barely pray for myself. Have you ever felt that way, anyone? I can barely pray for myself. Can someone pray for me? Don't you love that idea? I can't do this yet myself. He says, you at that moment, you depend on those who are caring for you. As an act of faith, you trust that their faith in the sovereign Lord will be able to help you. 
See how this automatically brings community together? It's rigged so that it draws us closer together. Now it doesn't say like, oh, if the elders are really great and if you really like them and if you really trust them, then this will happen and you'll get healed and we'll all walk away really happy. That's not what the text actually says. Some of you won't pray for what reason? I don't know. You tell me. You're scared? You have fear? What will people think of me if I have the elders pray for me? I care about my reputation. If I go forward, I'm going to look weak. I'm going to look silly. I'm going to look super spiritual, and I'm actually not. Maybe you're afraid that it won't work. That's why you won't come forward. Maybe you're, you've asked for things in the past and you've been so bitten by this unanswered prayer business that you just are terrified to ask for anything more because you're afraid of being disappointed again. But these are things that are driven not by the love of God, but by the fear of what other people think or the fear of what might happen. says, let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And some of you right there are like, stop it. That's weird. That's real weird. Got it right here. I'm coming to get you after the service. I'm just kidding. I'm not. What I want to do is dispel this idea that this has magic powers. Okay? Again, let's try and get in the context of James here. And remember that there are all kinds of things that had uh, various, they had various ways of do, doing things. They had a culture that was very familiar with kind of symbolic ideas. Okay? This idea of oil was used in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it was medicinal. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have ibuprofen that you could just pop. Sometimes like chapped lips, you put a little oil on them, it moistened your lips up and healed your lips. Or your sores. They put it on animals. Again, the animal husbandry image. Soften up maybe some cracked hooves. Or some frozen ears. It had that sort of meniscus. Sometimes that's what they did. But I think it goes even deeper than that. Sometimes it was, it was. It was like, oh, this is magic. You know, if you watch TV late at night and come across maybe something with a screaming preacher in a white suit, he might say if you... Give me $35 a month with your debit card. I will send you some magic oil that you can pour on your feet and you will get healed. That still happens. And I say that's not true. It's not magic in the oil. God doesn't bless oil. He blesses people. There's also a third way that oil was used and that was for anointing. I know it's a very unusual way. We have a very different way of anointing now, don't we? Okay, there's a, there's a young man just in a, in a suburb north of Calgary that has been anointed the next Wayne Gretzky. Right, I was he, 19 years old? He's been anointed the king of this building, the house that Connor built, right? 
He was anointed. There was no ceremony for this. Some sportscaster said he's an anointed next one who will take the Edmonton Oilers into glory. We'll see how that goes. Right? But way back in the day, in biblical times, they actually used oil for anointing. They didn't use crowns. They used oil. Anointing, anoint is this kind of like set-apartness. It was a way of setting someone apart. It was a, a physical act to follow something that w- was reality. So this person was set apart as a king and therefore a physical act joined it. That's kind of how we view communion. There's a spiritual act that happens inside of us whereby we trust in Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, the blood and the, and the bread. But when you take this, it doesn't have a magical power, but there's something unique about it when you, when you partake with the symbolism behind it. And so what they would do to anoint kings is they would pour oil all over their beard. All the hipsters just went, ooh, yeah. Before like beard softening oils came, there was anointing. And so it's a beautiful thing. It's like, in, in some of these texts is fascinating. It's like that image and that smell would just be priceless, wouldn't it? There's one particular image where uh, Samuel anoints uh, Saul and the, and the oil just drips from his beard off of his head. I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Just pour it over. You are anointed. Jesus is going to make you king. That's what James says. Why don't you anoint people with oil to symbolically say, hey, the king is here. We have called down the power of the Almighty God upon your body today. And you can feel it. I, I love that my, my wife actually brought this in. Because me, I'm the skeptic, right? So I'm kind of like, ah, do we need it? I was like, but this is so powerful. So there are times when we pray for people after a service, Leslie grabs this. She dips her hands in the oil and she anoints people's foreheads with the sign of the cross. This is a child of the king. We're not calling power by our own authority. This is not magic. This is symbolically our way of saying, Jesus, have your way. Would you heal this person? Now, doesn't that sound a little bit better now that you know that? Doesn't that sound a little less creepy for some of you? That's the way we want to be. We want to be where this is kind of the norm. This is a special gift given to Christians, I think. And I don't believe this is just on the case of the elders, but this is, if elders aren't going to do this, who will? That's what James is saying. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What James is doing there, he's, he's trying to say, not that every time you pray, you will be healed. This is not a blank check. No matter how many times I looked at commentaries, there is not one who is willing to say, if you do this in this way, there is automatic healing. We know this. And the Bible never does this as every time that you do certain things, you pray certain ways, you receive certain things. Except when we pray for the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus says he will answer this. But interesting that James starts to move from physical to spiritual. He's saying ultimately, 
It will save that person. It's pointing to this idea that ultimately what needs healing is probably not your physical body because no matter how many physical healings you get, you will die. You will die. Even if you're raised from the dead, you'll die again. Maybe the most powerful form of healing would be resurrection, would it not? You've heard of these, some of these stories? People are in water for an hour in cold water and they somehow are resuscitated and come back from the dead. This is the most amazing thing that happens. And yet there's still death somewhere along the line. But that's the difference between physical healing and spiritual healing. Spiritual healing lasts forever. Spiritual healing is something that starts here on earth and will last for eternity. And so James begins to move that way. But then immediately he says into the next paragraph, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. See, this is the crux of it. Some of us don't think of this being the big miracle, but it is. But it is. The biggest miracle on the planet is how God can take a, a heart a hard, rebellious heart who does not believe in him, who does not love him, who does not think he is a great king, and change that heart and heal that heart to the point where that person begins to believe and trust and be forgiven of his or her sin. That's the greatest miracle of all time. I think we gloss over this so easily, how miraculous this really is. But take a moment and go back into your own faith. How difficult is faith for you at some times to believe? You need some outside help. And James begins to push these believing friends to this idea to ask for true healing. It's interesting the connection that he makes to um, asking and receiving. You know, Jesus said something very similar in John 14. In John 14, Jesus is praying and teaching his disciples. And in John 14, he actually says to his disciples, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. Again, some would read that. Oh, this is a blank check. I can ask for a new car in Jesus' name and he will Receive it. Maybe you've seen this on television. Maybe you've heard this from a preacher somewhere who said something along these lines. This is exactly what Christian was talking about when he said the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is I believe in God and he does stuff for me. In fact, I believe in God so that he does stuff for me. And the more I believe in God, the more stuff I get from God. And by stuff, they usually mean stuff. Not healing, inner healing, but like material possessions. That's usually how that's measured. But Jesus wasn't saying this is a blank check to ask for anything. He was saying, when you have me in charge of everything and when my will be done in your life, you can ask for anything that you want. This is how our prayers should be directed. If it's your will, God, would you do this? This is not a cop-out. 
I have been told by people over and over again, oh, you don't have enough faith. That's why you add that. If the Lord wills or if God does this. No, it's not a cop-out. It's not a cop-out to say, if you want this to happen, God, it will happen. And if you don't want it to happen, it won't happen no matter how hard I pray. That is not a cop-out. That is a faith that God is absolutely in control regardless of what I think or feel on that particular day. Some of you, like me, have felt guilty about adding this on to your prayer because you feel it shows a faithlessness. No, it doesn't. It shows a deep trust in the sovereign will. What is sovereign? It's over everything. Some of you think everything rests on you. It doesn't. The text says it is about God's will. It is about what he wants to accomplish. And yet there's this wide open door to say, but you can ask. And maybe in the asking, you begin to purify some of your own motives. That's actually how James speaks. Like some of you ask and you don't receive, but it's because you have terrible motives. You want it for you, not for God. But when you begin asking for things that don't necessarily impact you, but make God's name great, things actually begin to happen. What James also says, is he makes this great connection, and this is the next part. For some of you, the last two points will not be nearly as long as the first two points, so don't worry. But he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Did you catch that? There's no longer this elders thing anymore. This is where James doesn't want to get into like, only the elders can pray for healing. Only the elders can help you. No, it actually says, because this is all true, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This brings up a very uncomfortable, the very uncomfortable point that says perhaps you haven't received healing because you refuse to confess your sins. Sometimes we ask for healing because we want God to fix something. Meanwhile, we don't want any spiritual healing at all. And the text I say very uncomfortable because I say seems like it depends a lot on me despite the fact that you just said it was based on God. Because there are things that hold back healing in God's kingdom. Primary in that is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Why unconfessed sin? Why is confession such an important part I'll tell you why. It's because confession is part of believing the gospel. And if you don't regularly believe the gospel, then why would God heal your body? The gospel is about spiritual healing. He ultimately cares about souls, not just bodies. If he's only focused on your physical body without being focused at all on the spiritual part of your life, why would he heal you? James is actually saying sometimes people are sick because he wants to heal their soul, not their body. He wants to trigger something. Now, this makes sense if you've ever had a physical ailment. 
If you've ever had a physical ailment, are you the one who cheerfully sings praise? Generally not. Generally not. Unless you're Ben. <laughs> that was a joke. Ben's always cheerful. That's what I was saying. But there's nothing like sickness and suffering and physical ailment to draw you out and find out what's really in your heart and what you really want, isn't it? You ever notice that? I mean, I notice that with something as simple as getting headaches. I'm like you. I don't deserve a headache. I'm working hard for you, God. Why do I have a headache? Why don't you fix this? It's like, what kind of heart is that? Wow. It amazes me sometimes. This little tiny physical ailment that some people live with on a daily basis. And within a couple of seconds of me noticing, I find out, actually, I only care about me. I don't care about God's glory. And some of you this morning, the big thing that you need to learn, like me, is that your physical healing is actually tied into your spiritual healing. And it's not happening because of a stubborn heart. A heart that will not confess that you need help. A heart that will not confess your sin to one another. Now what is James talking about? Is he just talking generally about confession of sin? Are we, you know, are you going to come up here and confess all of the sins you've ever done? No, I think James has in mind specifically the sins against one another. I actually don't think that it's wise to confess all of your sin to every person that you meet on the face of the earth. It's not wise. It's not what the Bible actually says, not how the Bible encourages us to confess our sin. Confession should always, in that sense, be to someone that we trust. Confession that's not, or sin that's not against other people should be confessed in a trustworthy environment where, where you know people are leading you to the gospel and helping you through this rather than ready to condemn you. And I, I know this is why some of us don't confess our sins because we haven't found that trustworthy person yet. I understand that. It's why we believe family is so important here. But what is he saying? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Interestingly enough, I had some confessing to do before this service. There was someone who I needed to ask forgiveness of. I knew Jesus was asking me to do it. I did it. The person actually shrugged and said, I... Okay. But it was hurting me. It was causing some physical unhealth. It was causing things in my heart that were not good. This morning there may be someone who you've hurt. Maybe they're not here. Maybe they are. And you actually need to confess your sin to them. I believe I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Some of the most important words you will ever say as a Christian, I am sorry. Not, I am sorry, I didn't mean it. I am sorry. Unequivocally, I apologize. No asterisks, like that wasn't even my intention, but I'm sorry. Why is that important to 
spiritual healing. I'll tell you why. Because that's exactly how you believe in the gospel. That's why. This is the pattern of the gospel. The gospel isn't, hey God, I'm stuck a little. Can you help me out? Can you help a brother out? Can you help a sister out? That's not a belief in the gospel. A belief in the gospel is, God, you're in authority. You're king over all things. Would you forgive me of my sin? And would you create in me a brand new heart that can now follow you? I turn my life over to you. I receive everything that you've bought for me through Jesus Christ. That's belief in the gospel. The Bible actually says, say it out loud. actually says, therefore, if you confess with, in your heart and with your mouth, you will be saved. Well, confession is actually a normal part of a Christian life. Normal part of a disciple's life. We could go on and on. I got to wrap it up. I could talk about a righteous person, about Elijah, can't go into too much of that, I would simply say this. Righteous does not mean perfect. It means someone who has made things right and continually makes things right with God. There is such thing as regular confession and repentance. This does not happen just at the beginning of our life as a disciple. This happens all the way through. And then James dispels this idea that Elijah was this superhuman who had superpower prayers, that when he dropped oil on people, that he had magic powers to do things. He said he was actually a person exactly like us. He prayed and it didn't rain for three years. Then he prayed again and it started raining again. If you want that story, go to First or Second Kings. Sorry, Second Kings, I believe. It's miraculous. You're like, wow, he just lowered leveled the playing field here and basically said, you, you all have the same opportunity for prayer as Elijah did. There was nothing special about him. And to a Jew who's reading this or hearing this, they're like, really? I thought he was the greatest of all things. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene, they thought he was Elijah again. That's how superhuman he appeared. And what James says, he lowers the playing field and he says, he was just like us. He prayed, believed that God could do it. He did it. He prayed again, believed that God would start it up again, and he did. And he says, everyone who believes in Jesus has this opportunity. So I want to I ask you some harder questions. I want to ask you. I want to ask us. Why do you resist confessing your sin? What is it? What is it? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of what people think? Are you afraid of what might God do? What he might ask you to do? Are you afraid of what people will think of you? Are you afraid that he won't listen to you? And I would say this. The gospel reminds us that in Jesus, we have no need to fear. We have no need to fear. Jesus covers all of our reputation. He covers all of our identity. He covers, he covers our back. He protects us. He fights for us. 
in Jesus, trust in Jesus, allows us to not have to fear. Now I know we do fear. I'm just saying we don't have to in Jesus. Some of you don't ask because of pride. You think too highly of yourself. You think, I don't need help. I don't need healing. God can't give me the kind of healing that I really need. And so you don't ask because you are in control and not God. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel says you cannot believe the gospel and be proud at the same time. You can't have it both ways. Well, this is God saying, if that's the way that you want it, then that's your choice, but that's not on me. He says there's one thing that squashes the grace of God, and what is it? It's pride. So there's an opportunity for some of us here to just be humbled and to humble ourselves. They both work together. To say, you're right, God. I'm proud. I think I got the corner on this. I think I know what this is all about. I can do this. I'm independent. I'm self-sustaining. And the gospel challenges this. That ultimately, you aren't in control. You just think you are. And the gospel reminds us that no matter how much you think you're good enough for God, you're not. No matter how much you think you can do for God and please God on your own, you can't. And so some of you won't ask because of pride. Some of you won't ask because you're faithless. That's my category. The reason why I say that if there's one thing that I wish I had more of, it was faith. Always. And so regularly my prayer is, I, I do believe a little bit, Jesus, help me believe more. I do believe a little bit, Jesus, I have small faith. Can you do something with that faith? I, I believe that you're in control. I believe that you can do something about this situation. I just struggle to believe that you will do something about this. And what this faithlessness ultimately is, is disbelief in how loving God is. That some of you are afraid to ask God because you picture God as someone who sits behind a desk, has limited resources and time, and will only answer you if you bang on the door constantly and fervently. That's not our God. Our God is so loving that he did not wait for you to bang on the door, but he came to you first and banged on your door. That's the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is not that people planned for the Messiah. The story of Christmas is that the Messiah planned to come to the people. That God did not wait for us to reach him. He said, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to chase after them. I'm going to incarnate in their world instead of making them incarnate in my world. And faithlessness ultimately is just a disbelief in how much God loves us. And so what's hold you back, friends? 
I think the text is showing us. What is it? Confess that sin. Confess your sins. Ask. Be humbled. And so there's an application simply for you to say, who do I need to confess to if I do? What do I need to confess? Perhaps you simply need to hold your arms open and say, I am proud. And I've never acknowledged that I actually am far more arrogant than I think. Or you need to acknowledge that you just don't believe God loves you as much as he actually does and say, would you show me? You see, in every situation, there is an opportunity to reach out and receive what God has for us. Everyone, if you're cheerful, if you're suffering, if you're sick, if you're arrogant, if you're faithless, if you're hopeless, and if you're scared, The text ends simply by saying this. I can't spend any time on this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Some of you have been told things like when a Christian stumbles and falls, it's not your business. James says that's not true. The whole book has been about how do you prove that your faith is real? And the last two verses say, you're not in it just for you, friend. You're in it to help others. Yes, I I believe we can only truly help others when we understand how much we have been helped. But he's encouraging. This is a big deal. And this, what's this truth wanders from the truth? I think it's earlier proved in the book of James that this truth is simply talking about the gospel. In other words, James is saying, if you can bring anyone back and remind them of how good the gospel is, you are saving them from a multitude of pain. That sometimes maybe this is your action is that you come and receive from your church family and you get healing and you ask for prayer and then you walk out the door and don't worry about anyone else. And your big challenge is you need to stay a little bit longer after the service and help someone see the gospel. You need to call that person up this week and say, can we go out for coffee? I want to encourage you in the gospel because you look downhearted and you look like you need to hear some truth of the gospel again. You need to follow up on that text you sent. We should have coffee sometime and and put that in your calendar so that you can say, hey, I just want to remind you of all the great graces of God that I see in your life and I want to bring some encouragement to your life and some hope. You want to say, hey, I think I've neglected you a little bit more than I should have. I think, I think you could use this. Hey, would you like to come over and have a meal with me and my family so that we can tell you how encouraged we are by what we see in your growth in the gospel? See, this is not just commands for us personally as individuals. This is commands for us as a church. Can you imagine what our church would look like 
if we worried about our own personal faith, but we also had eyes for everyone else and said, is anyone, is anyone suffering? Where are they? Let's find them and pray for them. Is anyone sick? Put up your hand. Let us know. We'd love to come and pray for you. Is anyone cheerful? Stand up and sing for crying out loud. No matter what, no matter what, there's action for us to do. And I love that James ends this way and reminds us that this isn't about you exclusively. It might start with you, but it's not ultimately about you. That this is how the community of God grows. This is how the community of God matures. This is how the community of God that he's given to us grows up in faith and matures in faith and how we prove it to one another. So Joel, I'll call you up because you have no band. Brave Joel today by himself. <laughs> We're thankful. Let's pray together. And so Jesus, we, we ask you humbly this morning for a continued miracle. As we come and partake of the symbolic supper that you gave to us, May Jesus, we follow through on the things that you have prodded us about today. Jesus, would you help those who need to come forward for prayer, come forward for prayer? Would you give them the faith that they need to even take that step and just even today depend on the faith of someone else for help? Jesus, would you give people the courage to repent of their fear, of their righteousness, of their pride, of their own ability to fix things. And Jesus, would you allow people to come and accept your help that you gave to them on the cross? Jesus, would you help those who today is a good day? Today is a cheerful day. Today things are going right. Would you help those people to once again recognize that their cheerfulness, their ability to smile today is not they pulled themselves up in their own socks, but that you did, Jesus, and that this is a pure act of grace. And Jesus, would you help mature us as a church that we may not simply look inwardly and worry just about our own faith, but Jesus, would you open our eyes to the needs of the community around us in city groups, in Sunday morning services, in off times, Jesus, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the hurt and the needs that we need to pray for? And Jesus, I ask that you would help us to pray for one another in coffee shops, in homes, in restaurants, at work, on the street. May we be bold to pray for one another and say this is an opportunity to acknowledge that there is a king, he is in charge, and it's his will be done. Jesus, would you again not do this on the basis of what we have done for you, but on the basis of what you are and who you are. And we ask for all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.